This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. The remainder of this week, we bring you four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 to 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of the Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Now, here is Paul Nyquist on Today in the Word radio. The theme for this week is a majestic one. The riches of His grace. For if there's one word that is at the core, the heart, and the center of Christianity, it is grace. For without grace, Christianity is just another religion. Without grace, Christianity cannot be distinguished from any other man-made ritual. But with grace... Christianity is absolutely unique. Islam does not have grace. Buddhism does not have grace. Hinduism does not have grace. No other world religion has anything that even remotely resembles grace. For as Dr. Charles Ryrie once put it, grace is the peculiar property of the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis once noted this when he was at a conference at Oxford University on world comparative religions. And he noticed as he was walking by a room that there was a heated debate going on. So he stuck his head in to see what the fuss was all about. And they said they were debating the unique contribution of Christianity to world religions. And he said, that's easy. It's grace. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what grace means. It is God's unmerited favor to sinners. We deserve condemnation. We receive salvation. That's grace. However, unfortunately, believers have a habit of diminishing grace. That is, even though it's at the center of the Christian faith, even though this is the most majestic of all themes, those of us who have experienced God's grace routinely fail to rightly reflect it. 
and its beautiful music is muted. When I was in high school, I played trumpet in the band. And as you probably know, a trumpet as a brass instrument is one of the loudest instruments sometimes, unless you put a mute in. And then you can still play the music, but its sound, its music is muted. And that's how grace is for many believers. It's there, it's been experienced, but its sound, its music is muted in our lives. God's grace is diminished. How? Well, let me give you some examples. One way grace is diminished is when we begin to act like we deserve it. And that can happen the further and farther we get from the day of our conversion. Because we, as we become progressively sanctified, as our mind becomes renewed, we can begin to well up with spiritual pride and think, God made a pretty good choice in picking me to be part of his family. <laughs> Look at me now. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I'm a missionary. I'm the elder board chairman. Oh, God made a great choice in picking me to be part of his family. And we can begin to act like we deserve it. Or another way in which grace can be diminished is the opposite of that. And that is when we act like we're still trying to earn it. And so we labor and we serve and we work and we serve because we still have this works mentality present within us. And so we serve not out of love and thankfulness, but because we're still trying to pile up the works in our ledger. And so we may talk like we're saved by grace, but we act like we're still trying to earn it. Or another way grace can be diminished in our lives is when we abuse it. When we misapply Romans 5.20, which says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so we live a life of license and we abuse the grace that we've been given. And we say, it's okay, I'm forgiven. And of course, that's not new with us. The Corinthians did that back in the first century. But all these things diminish grace. That is, instead of our lives reflecting the manifold grace, as Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 7, instead, the music is muted. And the great theme of grace is lost in the cacophony of our lives. So how can we change it? How can we let grace be shouted from our lives? Not muted, not diminished, but shouted. We're going to see the answer to that tonight as we look at four powerful verses from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Paul, as you know, was the Apostle of Grace. No one developed this theme more than Paul. So we're going to look at four verses in what I call the mother load of grace, found in Ephesians chapter 1, near the beginning of that chapter, verses 3 through 6. So if you happen to have a Bible with you tonight, and I hope you do, I hope, please turn with me if you would to Ephesians chapter 1. 
verses 3 through 6. Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning in verse 3. Now, as you probably know, these four verses represent the first part of a very long, complicated sentence that Paul wrote that runs from verse 3 down to verse 14. It's broken down into different sentences in our our English translations for the sake of readability. But in the Greek text, it's all one complicated sentence containing, if you can believe this, 202 words. One Greek scholar called it the most monstrous conglomeration of a sentence that he had ever seen in Greek literature. Now, can you imagine writing something like that in your English composition class? 200 words. And we teach English composition at Moody. I don't think our profs would look too kindly on this. This would probably not win you the Jerry B. Jenkins Writing Award. But Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This monster sentence has been sliced and diced in a lot of different ways. But I think the best structure is to find the one that Paul put in it, which is where he breaks it into three parts, each part detailing a different work of the one person of the Trinity in our salvation. In verses 3 to 6, he talks about the work of the Father in our salvation. In verses 7 through 12, he talks about the work of the Son in our salvation. And then in verses 13 and 14, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And what he tells us is the Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Spirit guarantees it. And then at the end of each of these sections, there is a refrain that is repeated It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And you see that at the end of verse 6, at the end of verse 12, and then at the end of verse 14. Now this entire sentence is much too rich to just study in one message. I mean, that would be like gorging yourself on Thanksgiving turkey, Christmas ham, and some grilled steaks, brats, and burgers on the side. I mean, you just can't possibly digest all of that. So we're just going to slice off one piece of it tonight, the first piece, where it talks about the work of the Father in our salvation in verses 3 through 6, because he deliberately links this to grace. So read with me what he says, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And there in verse 6, you see the link to grace when he says, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, what are the works of God in this grace for our salvation? What are the gracious acts that he has done? Well, Paul gives us three of them 
in this passage. He gives us three statements that talks about God's gracious acts for us. First, he tells us he blessed us. Secondly, he tells us he chose us. And then finally, he tells us he adopted us. He blessed us, he chose us, and he adopted us. Now, being a preacher, I wish he would have reversed the order there so we could call this the ABCs of salvation. You know, Paul really could have helped us out by putting adoption first in this list. But he didn't. So we're going to take it in the order that he gives us here, which is not ABC, but BCA. He blessed us, he chose us, and he adopted us. And we're going to see with each of these actions... That God is the active agent, we are the passive agent. God is the subject of the sentences, we are the object of the sentence. God is the one doing the action, we are the one receiving the action. And friends, that's the only way it can ever be with grace. We're going to see at the end of each of these that there is also an end result, that God has a purpose in each one of these actions. And as we dig those out, we're going to see how we can shout out grace with our lives. So let's start with the first gracious act that God did for us in our salvation. This is the B. And that is he blessed us. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul begins in this long, complicated sentence with a declaration of praise to God for what he has done. He says, blessed be God who has blessed us. Now please note that it's not a command. It's not a call for us to bless God. In fact, there are no commands in this book until you reach chapter 4. Because the first three chapters, Ephesians, talk about our position in Jesus Christ. The last three chapters talk about our practice in Jesus Christ. And so that's where you get all the imperative verbs, the commands. So this is not a command. This is not a call. This is a statement. It's a declaration. He says, blessed be God. Or as other translations put it, blessed is God. Now, what does that mean? What do you mean when you say God is blessed? Well, it means God is worthy of our praise. It means God is deserving of our honor. It means God is deserving of our acclamation. He is blessed because he has done something for us. What has he done? Well, read on. He says, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Why is God blessed? Because he has blessed us. He has blessed us. That is, he has taken action to enrich us. He has taken action to augment us. He has taken action to uh, bless us so that our status has changed and we are now blessed. The very same language is used of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. Mary was just your normal, 
God-fearing teenage Jewish girl in small-town Nazareth until the angel Gabriel showed up one day. And the first words out of Gabriel's mouth were, Hail, favored one! Or better yet, Hail, richly blessed one! Why did he call her that? Because God had blessed her. God had chosen her to be the mother of the promised Messiah. So her status had changed. She went from being Mary the nobody from Nazareth to being Mary the blessed one. And that's exactly how Elizabeth refers to her at the end of Luke. When the first time she sees her, she says, Blessed are you among all women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. You see, her status had changed. She was now blessed. And the same thing is true for us as believers. We are blessed. But the blessing that God has given us far exceeds the blessing that he gave to Mary. Because notice it says here, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now consider those two adjectives because they give us both the quality and the quantity of our blessing. First, in terms of quality, he has blessed us with spiritual blessing. That means these are in the realm of the spiritual. They've been given to us by the Holy Spirit, and only God can give us spiritual blessings. You know, people can give you material blessings. People can give you physical blessings. We do that all the time in life, especially, say, at Christmas. You bless someone else with a gift. They bless you with a gift. Now, if that's Aunt Sally's fruitcake, you may not consider that much of a blessing. You may want to bless that blessing on somebody else. But that's usually how it happens. They bless us materially. But only God can bless us in a spiritual way. And Paul says, God has done that. He has blessed us with spiritual blessing. That's the quality. But then in terms of quantity, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That means God has already blessed us with every conceivable spiritual blessing. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessing. That is, there is nothing more that God can give to us. There is nothing he is withholding from us. There is nothing we can gain if we can just get a second blessing, if we reach a higher level of spirituality. No, every believer in Christ has received every spiritual blessing so that every child of God is now fully equipped, not stripped. When I went off to seminary 35 years ago, I drove a green 1970 Ford Galaxy 500. That was basic transportation, man. Vinyl seats. Remember those? 4W2V air conditioning. Four windows, two vents. No air. In Dallas, Texas. Which means that every time I drove the car, especially in the summer, I'd have to peel my shirt off the back of the seat because it'd be soaked with sweat. No power steering, no power brakes, no power anything. I mean, it's just basic transportation. Four wheels, an engine, stripped. 
Well, friends, that's not true of us as believers. You're not a stripped-down version of a child of God. You're not a basic believer with limited equipment. No, God has given you already every spiritual blessing. And if you don't believe that yet, Peter says the same thing. In another 1-3, 2 Peter 1-3, he tells us there, his power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what has he given to us? Everything. And Paul says, what kind of blessing has he given to us? Every spiritual blessing. So what are we lacking? Nothing, nada, zero, zilch. We already have it all. Now, knowing that's true, think how foolish it is for us to ask God for what he's already given to us. Oh, God, if I only have, uh, give me more joy, give me more power, give me more strength, give me this, give me that. I just need more, more, more. Well, there's nothing more God can give to you. He's already given us everything, every spiritual blessing. And so the need is not to ask God for more. The need is for us to use what he's already given to us. That is, our job is not to petition God for more blessing. Our job is to develop and utilize what he's already given to us. So how's that working out for you? How's that going for you? See, we're in a crisis when we're in a challenge. We can sometimes think that, you know, if I just had some new ability, some new blessing, some new gift that I'd be able to navigate through this in a godly way. And we get wrong-headed about all of that. The answer is not to ask God for more. The answer is to dive more deeply into the riches that he's already given to us. Let's now go to the second gracious act that God has done for us that we find in this text. First is the B, he blessed us. Secondly, the C, and that is he chose us. He selected us. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The second gracious act that God has done on our behalf is that he chose us. And the word chose is the Greek word eklego, which means to elect, to select, to choose. It means that someone or something is chosen out of a group, and it necessarily means that others are not chosen, that others are passed by. One of my friends that I developed at seminary was a former NFL linebacker named Dave Simmons. Dave had been an All-American at Georgia Tech, and he went on to become a first-round draft choice for what was then the St. Louis Cardinals. And he told me a story once of what happened during training camp when he was a rookie. He said, they came in, and there were these huge platters of fried chicken. And he said, one of the veteran players went, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. What's he doing? He's picking. He's choosing. 
which means that other pieces were left behind. And Dave said, one of the other players went, you can have it, you can have it, you can have it. (laughs) Now, regardless of whether you're picking chicken or picking people, that's the basic concept in election. Someone or something is chosen out of a group, and it necessarily means that some are not chosen. However, God's sovereign election of us differs slightly from that in two important ways. First, God's choosing of us was pretemporal in eternity past. He says again in verse 4, He chose us before the foundation of the world. That is, before there was anything besides God, He chose us. Before creation, before Genesis 1-1, before there were people, before there were planets, before there were stars, before there was anything, before the foundation of the world, God chose us. His choice of us was pre-temporal. But then secondly, his choice of us was also unconditional. That is, there was nothing in us that conditioned, motivated caused God to choose us. It wasn't like that platter of chicken where maybe the best pieces were chosen and the others weren't. No, there was nothing in us that caused God to choose us. He chose us simply because it pleased Him to do so. Now you might say, well, I I thought God chose me because He knew I would believe. That as a guy looked down through the corridors of time and he saw on September 25th, 1972, that Paul Nyquist would come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so he chose me. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Because if that were true, then our faith would become the basis or the cause of our salvation. And the Bible never presents faith as the basis or cause of our salvation. It's always the means of salvation. For instance, just look ahead in the next chapter, chapter 2, Ephesians 2, two very familiar verses 8 and 9. Notice Paul says, Therefore by grace you've been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Notice Paul does not say you've been saved because of faith. He says you've been saved through faith. And that's how the Bible always presents faith. It's not the cause of our salvation. It's the means of our salvation. So when God chose you, he chose you unconditionally. There was nothing in you that conditioned him to do that. He simply did so because it pleased him to do so. And you might say, well, I thought I chose God. You did. But only because he first chose you. John Chadwick wrote these words. He said, I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. See, I think far too often we're emphasizing the wrong thing in election. And we're forgetting 
that God didn't have to choose anybody. And if he hadn't taken the initiative in our salvation, then none of us would be saved. And so the real wonder of it is not that he chose some. The real wonder of it is that he chose any. Now, what was God's purpose in choosing us? Why? What was the purpose? Well, he gives us that at the end of that verse. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that, and that's given the purpose here, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What was the purpose in God choosing us? That we'd be holy and blameless. Notice he does not say because we were holy and blameless. No, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless. In other words, God chose us in eternity past so that one day we might be holy and blameless before him. That as formerly creatures permeated with sin, totally depraved, deserving of condemnation, but now holy, now blameless, now without blemish. Now, positionally, that's already true of us as believers. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we now stand holy and blameless before his throne. But progressively and practically, God wants that also to be true of us. That is, the purpose for why he chose us is that we'd be put on this path of progressive sanctification so that becoming more like the image of Jesus Christ, we might one day be presented holy and blameless before his throne. And Paul repeats that purpose at the end of this book in chapter 5. If you look at chapter 5, at the verse 25, the very end of that verse, he said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. And then he says in verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she be holy and blameless. Now, you know what this means practically? means that God's choice of us in the past needs to impact our choices in the present. God's choice of us in the past needs to impact our choices in the present. Because if God chose us to be holy and blameless, then when we choose unrighteousness, when we choose sin, when we choose ungodliness, we are working in ways contrary to the purposes of God, and God's grace is diminished. So we shout out grace in our lives by choosing holiness. We shout out grace in our lives by choosing righteousness. In other words, God's gracious choice in the past of us is best reflected in our lives when we choose godliness and righteousness today. Well, let's look now at the last gracious act of God that he has done for us. It's in this passage. First, the B, that is, he blessed us. Secondly, the C, and that is, he chose us. Now the A, he adopted us. That is, he predetermined that we'd be part of his family. 
Look at verse 5. He says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To predetermine someone means you have established their end. Their outcome is already predetermined. Their end is already established. It means that no matter what may happen, this cannot not happen. It's predetermined. It's like what happens on a lesser scale when those WWF wrestling matches, you know, two very large men go into those ring and they throw each other around as if the outcome is in jeopardy. Not true. The end is already determined. The outcome has been established. And they're just actors in the drama. In the same way, God has predetermined our end. But the emphasis in this verse is not on the who. It's on the what. That is, he has predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, the backdrop for that adoption is the practice of adoption in the Roman society. And if you study that out, you'll see there's two very important features of adoption in the Roman society that is helpful for us. First, adoption in the Roman society meant that when a son was adopted into a family, he was given all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son or daughter. That is, he was not considered second-class. He was not on a lower level. He was not considered inferior. No, he was given all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son or daughter. And consequently, he also shared in the inheritance as a natural-born son or daughter. Well, who's the natural son of the Father? Christ. And in whose inheritance do we share? Christ's. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading uh, to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Catch that. We are fellow heirs with Christ. So we share in his inheritance. So just as God has raised Christ from the dead, he will also raise us from the dead. Just as he has seated him in high places, he has also seated us in high places. Why? Because he has adopted us. And we are now co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There's also a second feature of Roman adoption that's very important for us to understand. And that is not only does it mean that you gain all the rights and privileges as a natural born son or daughter, but it also means you have moved from the authority and control of your natural father and you've been placed under the control and authority of your new father. So you've been removed from the authority of your natural father. You now are under the authority and care of your adopted father. Who's our natural father? Satan. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, we were enslaved to him. 
We were once sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Satan was our natural father. But he tells us here, because of our adoption of sons, we have now been removed from his domain, his authority, and we have now been placed under the authority and the care of our new adopted father, our heavenly father. And because he will never die, because he is eternal, we will forever be under his care. Here is what God has done for us. These three acts of salvation that he mentioned here. Three acts involved in our salvation. First, he blessed us so that we lack nothing. He chose us so that we might be holy and blameless. And he adopted us so that we are now heirs with Christ. Now, what's the end goal in this? What does God want to see from this? Well, that's what he gives us in the last verse, verse 6. Here's the goal. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. What does God want to see happen from this? What? He wants to see praise. He wants to see glory. He wants to see those of us who have been recipients of this amazing grace shout out that grace, not only with our lives, but also with our lips. That we bring him the honor, that we bring him the glory, and that we don't do anything to diminish or mute that grace in our lives. Verse 6 in our English translations do not reflect, I think, the repetition of grace that's actually in the text. The way it actually is in the Greek text is to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he be graced upon us. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he be graced upon us. In other words, it's all grace. He blessed us in his grace. He chose us in his grace. And he adopted us in his grace. And what does he want to see come from all that display of grace? He wants to see us shout our grace with our lips and with our lives. He wants to see us shout out grace with our lives by choosing holiness and righteousness now. He wants us to shout out grace with our lips by giving him the praise and the honor that he's due. He wants us to shout out grace with our lips and with our lives. He doesn't want us to mute it. He doesn't want us to diminish it. He wants us to shout out grace with our lips and with our lives. Because ultimately, friends, it's that grace... It will one day bring us home. The story is told of a man who died and he was before the gates of heaven and he saw Peter there. And Peter said, well, here's how it works up here. You tell me everything you did and I'll give you points for it. When you get 100 points, you get in. The man thought, okay. Well, he said, I... Um, I was married to the same woman for 50 years. 
I never cheated on her once, not even once, not even in my heart. Peter said, that's great. That's worth two points. <laughs> kind of startled him. So he said, okay. Um, I was an active member of my church, and I supported it faithfully with my time and my talent and my treasures. Peter said, fantastic. That's worth three points. He was beginning to get a little worried. So he said, um, I uh, started a homeless shelter. And every year at the holidays, we fed hundreds of people. Peter said, great. That's worth one point. And the man said, one point? He said, at this rate, the only way I'll get in is by the grace of God. <laughs> Peter said, come on in. It's the only way you get in. It's the only way I get in. It's all grace. So shout out grace. Shout out grace. Shout it out in your lives and with your lips. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages former MBI president Paul Nyquist delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 through 2014. Paul Nyquist is a pastor, author, former president of Moody Bible Institute, and currently dean of graduate programs and professor at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.